For the next five weeks, as we move through 2 Corinthians, we're going to encounter visual aids, metaphor after metaphor, picture language, where Paul is effectively helping us to see what following Jesus looks like. Specifically, uh, as we've entitled this series, The Shape of Ministry. What does it look like? And I'll spoil the plot for you right now. It looks like Jesus. Okay? That's Paul's primary uh, point that he's trying to make in this passage, is that although he has his critics, although there are those who question his authority, although there's been this uprising in the church that he started, affecting the people that he led to the Lord, uh, he really is following in Jesus' footsteps. And so if they want to know that his ministry is valid, they just have to lay it aside right next to the ministry of Jesus to see the similarity. Here's where it's of value to us, because side note, when Paul talks personally about his own ministry, there's a part of that that does not apply to us, right? This is Paul the Apostle, chosen by God to be his authoritative representative, his voice, In fact, the words of the apostle in scripture are the words of Christ himself. They carry and convey the authority of Christ. The reason why we don't continue to add new books to the Bible, even though sometimes Christians say very encouraging things, is because this role is over. This first generation of foundation-laying apostles has ended. And so we always have to read about the life of Paul through that lens, recognizing that a part of this doesn't apply to us. But because an apostle is part of the body of Christ, and because his ministry, even if his role is also even if his role differs, is also our ministry, then there are still things we can learn here. Okay, the role may be different, but the shape is the same. And so it will be helpful for us in the next few weeks to get a feel for the shape of ministry so we know what it looks like to follow Christ. And I will tell you right now that it is full of surprises. In fact, what we're going to see this morning is best summed up in the word paradox. Okay. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read our verses for this morning. We'll pray and then we'll take a look. For context, I'd actually like to include some verses we covered last week. So I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. God, we have to own up and recognize to something that the prophet Isaiah makes clear. 
when you speaking through him says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, but as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. We cannot just graft Christianity into our life. We cannot just continue on with business as usual. And so I ask that you'd help us to understand the shape of Christian ministry in our lives, that you would lay out the pattern in Jesus Christ, that you would cut away the things that don't fit the contours of that shape, the things that are incompatible with the gospel, and that through this, Lord, your work and your ministry would continue. We ask this in your name. Amen. Something interesting happens organizationally in 2 Corinthians at this point. In verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us a little bit of uh, geographical and chronological timestamps. Right? He tells us where he was and when he was. Where was he? He was in Troas waiting for Titus. Titus was the guy who had carried the severe letter, this big rebuke to the Corinthian church, and he, he's waiting for Titus to return so he knows how the church has responded to it. He's so upset about this, he's so torn up about this, even though there's an incredible open door in Troas for ministry, he can't, he can't focus, he can't keep his mind on it. And so he moves on to the next place, uh, the next place on the agenda, on the itinerary, uh, where if he couldn't make it in time for Troas, then they would meet up at Macedonia, right? And so he doesn't stay in Troas, even though there's opportunity, he gets to Macedonia. He mentions this, and when we get to verse 14, it seems, in fact, notice it begins with the word but, it seems like there's a shift here. What's interesting is halfway through what we call chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he comes back to Macedonia. He comes back to Troas. He comes back to the arrival of Titus. In fact, if you were to just jump from one to the other, you might even not notice that second, uh, these last few verses of chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and half of 7 were even missing from the letter. Okay. To the degree that scholars usually refer to these chapters as Paul's great digression. Okay. But we should be grateful for the digression he gives because effectively what he lays out for the next few chapters, not just the five weeks that we're going to look at, um, but, but for the next few months, all the way into chapter seven, what ministry looks like for Paul. This is basically theology wrapped up in autobiography. Okay? As he points to himself, as he explains and therefore defends his ministry to the church. Um, and so as he does so, he, um, he gives us, as I said, many different ways to view his ministry through, but we need to keep in mind the reason he's doing this. I wish that what this was, was Paul writing to a faithful church on his deathbed and saying, continue on what I have started, here's what it will look like. But that's not what's going on. Paul is writing to a church where at least some are starting to question the validity and the value of his approach to ministry. These others have come in that Paul labels the super apostles. I'm holding my Bible so I can't do air quotes, but you should see them anyways. The super apostles, right? Those who rank even higher than the ones Jesus actually sent, who proclaim a profound uh, view of ministry that is full of victory and success and wealth and there's a big sound system and there's spotlights and when they come to the stage the audience roars 
right? And then there's weak and trembling Paul. And so his goal in this is to contradict this false view of ministry that they're being so drawn into. Now, why is this church so susceptible to this? It has to do with the fact that they live in Corinth. Corinth was a place that deeply valued public speaking, what the uh, classic Greeks called rhetoric, the ability to debate and to teach eloquently and beautifully. In fact, many people made their living like that, as public speakers. And so it's striking when Paul comes, looks around, and he goes, they are going to totally get the gospel wrong if I just do my usual thing. And so he abstains from a paycheck. And he says, there's no way I'm taking your money. You have to understand this is difference. Uh, different. He challenges their worldview. Instead of talking about the wisdom of God in Christ, he talks about the foolishness of the cross. He says, I know this isn't going to make sense. And he pushes and he harps upon that. He intentionally resists the things that attracts them so that they understand that their attractions are wrong. Okay, And so here comes this other group and they're offering the same Jesus but in a wrapping that makes more sense to them. One that's not so incongruent with their lives or with their cultures and they're being drawn away to it. So this is Paul's patient and loving reminder of what ministry looks like and who Jesus was. Now the other thing we have to understand as we get started this morning is that verse 14 begins with the word but. Okay? And so he says when he came to Troas, he's so emotional he can't even do the work of ministry. Right? He doesn't take the opportunity in front of him but just moves on to Macedonia. In fact, when he talks about this again in chapter 7, this is how he describes the context of his life at this point. Fighting without and fears within. And so he's in a rough spot. In fact, you may remember back in chapter 1, he basically is at the low point of his life. Where he is being utterly burdened beyond strength so that he would rather die. So that he's pretty sure the sentence of death is already written in his life. He feels the countdown clock. The end is nigh. That's the context of all of these things. Okay. So with that being said, hear what follows the but this morning. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. procession. There we go. Circumstantially, it's defeat. It's despair. It's depression. And he says, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph. Okay. Now, here's the thing. That can sound like foolish optimism. I couldn't help this morning but think of Monty Python's most gloriously blasphemous film, The Life of Brian. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's about Jesus's next door neighbor, Brian, whose life is completely changed just because he keeps being mistaken for Jesus. Um, And so what happens at the end of the film, and I I don't know what it is about endings. Apparently Monty Python doesn't like them, so they're all weird. Um, In this one, Brian gets crucified. And then he and those who are crucified near him begin to sing, always look on the bright side of life. And there's a whistling melody uh, that follows that. And it's just this absurd moment in the film. And then the credits roll, okay? From the outside... That's not a bad 
viewpoint of what Christianity looks like, right? At the center of Christianity is a man on a cross, and then there is statements like this, Jesus who always leads us in triumph. As I told you, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. In fact, in fact, on an old Roman monument, we have still to this day a piece of graffiti. And it's a picture of a man on a cross with the head of an ass, of a donkey. And beneath it, it says, Anaximander worships his God. That was the crazy foolishness of Christianity to the outside world. This is your God? This one dying on a cross? This is your victory? The most awful and torturous and shameful capital punishment the world has ever devised? But, but this is not merely positivism. In fact, that's very important. Okay? This is not Paul's optimism shining through. This is not equal to this idea of just, well, at least there's a bright side, right? Or, or that the scales of the universe will balance eventually. It's something different. In fact, we have to watch out for reading this and not missing something really profound that Paul does. First, let's talk about the imagery. It says that Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. He's painting a picture there that we may not get, but that world would have gotten easily. A triumphal procession is not just a concept, it's an event. It's something that happened somewhat regularly in the Roman world. You see, when the Romans would have a great victory of war, they would throw a parade for the victorious general. In fact, when Titus sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and returned to Rome, Josephus, the Jewish historian, paints a picture of that triumphal procession. So we know exactly the imagery that comes to mind. For us, there may not be a good comparison in life. You can probably remember through film, at the very least, what it was like at the end of World War II when the soldiers came home and there's the ticker tape confetti falling and the, you know, the waving of American flags. That gets us in the right direction, but this is a much bigger event, okay? This is, remember, for the entire Roman Empire a victory, and so it happens in the Roman capital, and people flock in from all over the place. If we had to get the sentiment of it, I think you probably can't do better than that musical number from Disney's Aladdin, right? The Prince Ali number with the elephants and all of the majesty and all of that. That's what's being talked about here, Okay, And so you go, well, yeah, that sounds optimistic. That sounds like triumph. His, his life looks like defeat, but it's actually victory. And there's a sense of truth in that. The cross looks like defeat. It's a place where it looks like the devil is tramp, uh, triumphing and trampling on the Son of God, but in actuality, it is victory, right? But what Paul says here is something way more profound than that. So here's how this parade would work, okay? At the front of the line, at the front of the line are the musicians. They come in first. They gather attention. They draw the attention. Just like a parade would have today, there's a big band, right? Following the band would be all the soldiers, you know, uh, dressed to the nines, marching in uniform and in organization and being applauded by the crowds. And then behind that, 
would be all of the prisoners of war, all of those who had been conquered, all of the leaders of the countries who had stood against Almighty Road and were now walking in chains, sometimes to imprisonment, most likely to death. Behind that would be the priests, swinging incense. This was a fully five-sensory reality, the triumphal procession. And so there's this smell of victory, napalm in the morning, if you will, right? Um, And then behind that, standing high on a chariot, would be the general himself, victorious. When he says here that Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, he sees himself in that event. Do you remember that song, When the Saints Go Marching In, how I'd love to be in that number? Right? That's the idea. That's the parade, right? In the victory parade, I want to be on the ground. I want to be in the audience. But when he says he's being led in triumphal procession here, he doesn't see himself as a soldier. And although he's going to talk about fragrance in just a second, he doesn't see himself as one of the priests. He sees himself as a captive. He sees himself as a prisoner. Now, how do I know that? I know that because this isn't the only place Paul uses this imagery. I'll show you a couple more. Um, Turn with me to the book of Colossians. So you're moving towards the end of your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and look at chapter 2. Here he's talking about that paradoxical cross of Christ and what was accomplished in it. And specifically, he wants to talk about that uh, juxtaposition between the apparent demonic victory that the Messiah is dead and the reality of the demonic defeat. Because, uh, well, let's take the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe as an example, right? Have you seen it? Do you, have you read the book? Do you remember what it's like? Here's the lion, Aslan who willingly and freely offers his life up instead of the sinner, Edmund. And the white witch, Jada, thinks this is the end of Aslan, and she's excited, and there's all of these horrible and wicked monsters surrounding and applauding, and then when the sun comes up the next morning, the stone table is broken, the lion is alive, and Jada's rule is over. Okay, That's Lewis trying to paint the picture of what Paul is talking about here, but notice how he says it. He says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When he says triumphing, he uses the same word. He recalls the same event and he sees the devil and his demons as prisoners here. Remember, this is the same Apostle Paul talking and that's where he puts the emphasis on this image. Now, side note. Well, let's look at one more place. Studying through 2 Corinthians, I've been struck by the relationship between its, it uh, and 1 Corinthians, between these two sister letters. I've been surprised how consistent Paul's metaphor and language is, and how sometimes he throws out an image in 1 Corinthians and unpacks it in 2 Corinthians, or references back to something he said in 1 Corinthians. Um, but notice what he says in chapter 4.
Remember I told you that the Corinthians were prone to certain categories of success and victory that stood incongruent with the gospel of Christ. He's teasing them here in chapter 4. He says basically that their lives are so good they have no longing left for heaven. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. Do you hear the image there? Two things. He says, first off, that we have been put on display, made a public spectacle last, and that we are like men sentenced to death. Okay. And so here's the missing paradox that you might not have caught in these verses as we read through them the first time. Yes, it's a triumph. Yes, he's being led by Christ Jesus, but it also looks like defeat and shame. In fact, we should recognize this first and foremost, that becoming a Christian is also best labeled surrender. That the victory that this triumph in Christ has accomplished is not merely that we've been subject to some evil power and Jesus has delivered us from us, but also that we were rebels armed against the living God. Right? That's what Paul says. While we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so Paul recognizes here, and remember it for him personally, he knows what this looks like. When Jesus found him, he was still breathing threats against Christ's church. His agenda was to kill Christianity by killing Christians. To end it. That's where Jesus met him. He is very much, very clearly, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He uses that language often. And this is so important. Because if you put yourself with the soldiers, there's a tendency to forget where you came from. And so now your victory becomes oppressive because it comes from a place of self-righteousness and entitlement. Have we seen this in the church? Do we find this in Christianity? Absolutely we do. A while ago, I was watching an announcement video for a church that is worldwide that was going to be starting a new church in the Bay Area. It was just their announcement video. And they felt like God had given them a prophecy out of Isaiah, and the prophecy was in, in language militaristic. It was talking about the fact that God was going to again give the land of Israel to the Jews and they were like, this is what we're coming to San Francisco to do. God has promised us that we're going to take land for the kingdom. And you listen to the language and you know what it sounds like? It sounds like manifest destiny. And somehow I came across a blogger who had been a part of the church in San Francisco for decades responding to that video And she said a couple of things. She said, first off, this is so tone deaf. When there's a city that is being gentrified so quickly that people are being squeezed out by these new incomers and now Christians are just riding the same wave, right? But the other thing that was incongruent was, and this is true often of of many of the churches that resonate with these things, 
is that they see themselves as victors, but not victors like this. Merely as victors and conquerors, but not as conquered. We have to watch out for the same thing in our lives. There's a paradox in the Christian life that it looks both like life and death. That it looks both like victory and defeat. That it looks like freedom and slavery. And when we settle for merely the good side of that, we always get it wrong. We settle. We truly settle, for one. Oftentimes, we become entitled and self-righteous, as I mentioned, for two. Paul doesn't see himself as a victorious soldier who's finally getting what he deserves and has worked for. He sees himself as simultaneously a benefactor and a defeated, a conquered one. We have to watch out for this version of Christianity that selectively chooses the things in the Bible that emphasize victory and wealth and health and goodness and strength and makes us basically just the receiver of all promises and then falls away from the Jesus who said, if anyone follows me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The two have to be held together. And so Paul isn't looking at the defeat and denying the reality of difficulty. This isn't just, if I just speak victory, then all of these things will go away. No, I will remind you that Paul will find himself in chains and will be beheaded at the end of his life. That is his final act of faithfulness as a Christian. And a lot of times, what we call victory is really just an unwillingness to fight. It's a staying home from war. It's a settling of comfort that just, just takes the best things the world has to offer and avoids all of the cost of discipleship. And so he's provocatively invoking the imagery that the Corinthians would resonate with and then turning it on its head. And I think, honestly, even this morning, some of us need that. We need this paradoxical image to refilter our life. And there's a challenge here. If it's part life and part death, if it's part victory and part defeat, then how do we know we have the right half in the right place? How do we know where the good things in our life are truly good things and not bad things, right? Do you, do you understand that that's the danger of paradox? If there's two halves, how do you know they're in the right places? Okay, we'll come back to that. But notice what he does next. He says, uh, he always leads in triumphal procession, verse 14, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's job as an apostle of Christ was to make the name of Christ known, to preach Christ and him crucified, as he says in 1 Corinthians. And so he says, that's exactly what God has done. And it's incredible if you look at the ministry of the apostle Paul and its outcome that one man, over the course of a single lifetime, can take Christianity that exists in 
Jerusalem and then has spread out into Judea and has gotten as far as Antioch and rip it through the entire Roman Empire, plant churches all over the known world at that time. And he recognizes that. He says that this is what God has done. He has spread the knowledge of him, the knowledge of God, everywhere. And then in uh, expressing this, he uses the, uh, the imagery of fragrance, of sense of smell. He says it's the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And as I told you, that was part of the triumphal procession. There was priests carrying incense. There was a smell of victory. But he starts there and he doesn't stay there. Notice what he says next, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When he adds the word aroma to the word he's already used for fragrance, he starts to mix metaphors. He moves out of incense and in to sacrifice. On Sunday nights here, we've been going through the book of Leviticus. And we've seen multiple sacrifices that after their instructions are laid out are labeled a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay? This is technical language that Paul is pulling from his Jewish past. And so here he's not merely talking about incense in a victory procession. He's talking about sacrifice in the temple of Israel. Okay. In fact, this is often a way he talks about the Christian life. Hear his words in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see what he says there? Not just that Jesus was a beautiful sacrifice to God, but that we are to imitate him. As I said earlier, Jesus said, if anyone seeks to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. There's an imitation here. That's why in the end of the book of Romans in chapter 12, he says that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. He points along the same way. And so he says here effectively that ministry looks like sacrifice. And it has a smell associated with it. But I want you to notice two things. There is a trajectory of sacrifice and an environment of sacrifice. And so notice what he says. We are the aroma, verse 15, of Christ to God. See that? Once I heard a preacher tell a story about a man who was leading his family and a guest at his table in prayer. And the man who was a guest was very boisterous, very loud. I'm sure you know the type. But the host was a relatively quiet man, and as he was praying, he prayed quietly. And the boisterous man interrupted his prayer and said, Speak up, I can't hear you. And the man looked him in the eye and he says, I wasn't talking to you. That's the nature of sacrifice. When Paul invokes this image, its purpose, its orientation, its goal is vertical in nature. It's as unto God. Okay? And so when Paul looks at the sacrifice of his life, it's not merely the sacrifice of love, of one person for another person. And we'll see why he holds on to that um, essential. And so he says there's this sacrifice being offered to God, and it's giving off a smoke. And that smoke is observable to those who are in proximity, right? That's the fragrance, the aroma that he's talking about. And so notice what he says 
He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those, atmospherically, proximity, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so he says, the smell is the same, but the audience is different. He breaks the world into two categories, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. I want you to notice the tense there. Not the saved and the dead, the being saved and the perishing. He uses these same phrases when he talks about these same things in 1 Corinthians. Listen to his words. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you hear those categories? The perishing and the saved. The being saved, excuse me. And so when he talks here about fragrance, we should see it, when he talks here about sacrifice, we should see it through two lenses. Both the lives that we live and the words that we speak. In fact, we have to hold those two things in context because he's already seen himself as a slave to Christ. He's already emphasized this part. But what does he say as he finishes off this passage in verse 17? We're not like so many peddlers of God's word. He brings it right around to the words that he speaks, to the message that he proclaims, the cross that he preaches as we saw in 1 Corinthians Okay, and so he's speaking holistically of the Christian life, both of works and words, both of a life lived and a message proclaimed. And he puts it in this personification, this picture of fragrance. But he says that the fragrance does different things for different people. I'm sure that all of you have a smell that you love and everybody does not. And you have a smell that you loathe and everybody loves. Okay? Smell is something that is unique to each of us, and it comes with experiences and associations. Okay? I don't want to press this illustration. Don't hold me to it, but just as a gateway. Think of a worshiper attending the temple of Israel and smelling the smoke of sacrifice, remembering what it says in Leviticus, that as that smoke ascends, it's a pleasing aroma to God, knowing that their sins are forgiven knowing that their worship is acceptable. And then imagine a modern member of PETA showing up at the same temple and smelling the same smell of burning flesh. It's a different thing, right? I don't want to put all PETA members in those who are perishing. That's not the point this morning. But that's the division that he draws. But what I want you to notice is once again a paradox, that it's the same message, but the response to it is different. And so as Paul goes, both he sees those responding to the message, rejoicing and being saved, and he sees those rejecting the message, not only not being saved, but rejecting it as what? The smell of death. Listen to what he says. He goes on, he explains here, he says, verse 16, to the one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. They look at the same event. They look at the same consequence of that event. They look at the cross of Christ and one says that is beautiful and the other says that is ugly. One says that is wisdom and salvation and the other says that is foolishness. 
They look at the same consequence, the same result, and one says that is freedom and life, and the other says that is slavery. That is regressive. That isn't freedom, that's destructive. And once again here we get somewhat of a paradox. The paradox is the Christian uh, life rightly lived and the Christian message rightly proclaimed leads to two very different results. One death and the other life. One acceptance, the other rejection. And this is another paradox that we have a hard time holding in tension. And sometimes we try and sweeten the pot of Christianity in a way that makes it more attractive and appealing and downplays the things that are rejected by the culture that we live in. And what we're we're really doing is measuring the value of the sacrifice by how people react to it. On the other hand, there are those who are Christians and the way that they define they know they found the truth is because everybody rejects it. And it can be the same problem, can't it? They intermingle in with the love of God, God, the hatred of men. They intermingle in with the reality of God's son as sacrifice, all of these little minor doctrines and rules and things. And Paul is just as hard on them as he is on those who widen the box. Heresy goes in two directions. It's not merely a loosening of constraints. It's also tying people down. That's why he says in Galatians to those who are proclaiming, yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. Yes, Jesus, but also the law of Moses. He doesn't say this is an addition to the gospel. He says that's another gospel entirely. He says if anyone proclaims a gospel like that, let him be accursed, because it's no gospel at all. We see two things this morning. The first is that we have to leave room for renunciation in the Christian life. That there are things we no longer do, things that we walk away from. That we are no longer free men to go where we want to go and choose what we want to choose and be the master of our own domain. My question to you is this this morning. Is there anything in your life that you don't do simply because Jesus told you not to? Not because you agree with Jesus, not because culturally everybody's on the same side on this issue. Are there places where there's a cutting edge to following Jesus, demands that you would rather not face, but, but you face them anyways? When Paul says that he's a slave following Jesus, that's what it means. Once again, the words of Jesus, if anyone seeks to follow me, he must deny himself. Is there any denial in your life? Listen to the words that Paul speaks to a young pastor by the name of Titus. We asked the big question this morning about the relationship between faith and works, between grace and the Christian life lived. Titus is, I think, one of the best places to turn to to answer this question. But listen to what he says here in Titus chapter 2. This is how he defines what God has done through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see how he holds those things together? By the grace of God, offered to all people, also training us to renounce, to deny, to stop. I know that sometimes that doesn't make sense. But Jesus tells a parable that I think is helpful. He says there was a man, a man who found in a field a treasure. And the treasure was so great that he sold everything he had to buy that field. This is not choose between these good things and this good thing on equal level. This is not uh, merely a case of um, what's good for me. It's something more profound than that. It's divine inflation, right? It's that the good thing Christ has offered changes the value of other things because it is so incredible, because it is so great. And so denial is necessary, but there's a sense where it no longer feels like denial. Self-control is essential, but it's something that you're not just doing because you're constrained to, because you have to, but because you desire to. There's a mixture of these things. Listen to Peter. I don't know why I feel like heaping on this point this morning, but the reason I can heap on this point is because it's constantly made in scripture this time in chapter 4 of 1 Peter he says this in verse 3 for the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry with respect to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery Those who are perishing, it looks like death. Jesus said, the world hated me. The world will hate you. Expect that, for you are not of this world. The primary metaphor that Peter uses throughout this letter is that we're exiles. We should be at best, in the lives that we live, resident aliens. Always slightly out of step with life as it's known and lived in the culture we live in. And that's true of every culture. What does that look like in your life? But we have the same problem we started with this morning. How do you know where the slavery is right and the victory is right? How do you know when you don't have these things in the wrong balance or in the wrong places? And it's the same thing with the fragrance. If Paul looks at his life and he sees people responding to it and people rejecting it, how do, we, how do we know that that balance is right? Think of this, okay? When Paul presents his ministry in this way and he says that through Christ we are the fragrance of the knowledge of God and because of that it is shaping eternal destinies as it's rejected or received. Do you understand why the next thing he says is who is sufficient for these things? The reality of the response to Jesus Christ is profound. It's tremendous. It's immense. And here he says, we are the ones who live our lives in such a way and who speak in such a way that some are saved and some reject. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can know where 
to urge and to capel and where to draw a line. Have you looked at Jesus' ministry? Have you noticed how sometimes it's come all who labor and I will give you rest and others it's sell everything you have and follow me? One Jesus. Because there's one message. That's why James speaks to the poor in his letter and he says, poor, rejoice because you're truly rich. And he says, rich, repent. Don't trust in your riches because they're not real. It's the same salvation that speaks to the poor and to the rich in different ways. Jesus knew how to address the things that stood in the way of salvation. And sometimes those were, I'm not qualified. I'm not capable. And sometimes they were, I don't need it. I have everything set. The way that I come to God is with an offering that says, here God, this is what I've done on your behalf. How do we do the same thing? That's why verse 17 begins with the word for. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And he reduces down to what he knows for sure. This is what he says. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says multiple things here that shape how he knows, how he can operate with confidence. Notice the first one. He says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. Now, the word there for peddler is just a, a usual word that means merchant originally but kind of like used car salesman is for us, after a while it carried a negative connotation. Okay. The word was most often used of people who sold wine. And the reason it became a negative is because they would water the wine down to make a greater profit. And he says he can be confident that that's not what's happening in his life. The super apostles are easing the boundaries and playing into the limelight, not because it's true, but because it's personally beneficial, right? It's for them. And so they they make adjustments to make it more appealing. And he says, but we're not, we're not peddlers of God's word. God has spoken in the gospel and we are merely carriers of the message. God has defined for us the contours of what it looks like to follow him, and we're just representatives shaped by those contours. But either the gospel is true, and God's righteousness is real, or it's not. There's no admixture here. There's no, Jesus got it 98% right, but this is one place where... That's what was happening with others. How, how could it be that they weren't drawing the lines rightly? And so they were the wrong frankrits at the wrong time to the wrong people with the wrong response because they were merely peddlers of God's word. They adulterated the word of God. They took the message and they modified it to fit their audience. Paul does that. But in a counterintuitive way, he goes, oh man, there is wisdom here. There is victory But this audience, they're going to hear that and they're not going to hear the deeper truths. And so what they need to hear is the one that challenges their culture, is contrary to their greatest and deepest beliefs. What does he say next? He says, second, but we're as men of sincerity. That speaks of motives. Why are you sharing? Why are you living the way you live? Nothing turns and taints the fragrance of Christ like seeking the applause of men. 
You can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and it changes the recipe. It smells different. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify God. If they see your good works and just glorify you, then you're not letting your light so shine. It's shining, but it's shining on the wrong person. And so sincerity, this, this word comes from holding up something to the light and the light shines through it and shows that it's real. It's like biting on a piece of gold to know it's not fool's gold. That's the idea here. As commissioned by God, right, with purpose that is rooting, rooted in God's calling. And then it adds here in the sight of God. Every once in a while... I find something that resonates with me in church history, an expression that we no longer use, or a way of thinking that has fallen out of use for no good reason. And this phrase, in the sight of God, became an anthem to the church in the 16th and 17th century for defining how we live life, in quorum Deo, before the face of God. Meaning that at any moment, every decision we make, every word we speak is for an audience of one knowing that God is watching, knowing that at the end of our lives, it's not going to be a democratic opinion that holds up the signs and gives us the scorecards, but a single judge. When he says in the sight of God here, it's not just his internal conscience that says, hey, as far as I know, my motives are pure. He has presented himself constantly and regularly before the face of God. To use the language he says earlier, the sacrifice has to be as unto the Lord. The fragrance is just consequential. How people respond to the fragrance is consequential, but the life that we live is unto the Lord. It's before the face of God as judge. And then finally he says we speak in Christ. And in Christ is a major concept for the Apostle Paul. You'll find that little phrase, in him or in Christ, over a hundred times across his letters. For him, it defines what the Christian life is, and so it means a whole lot of things. If I understand Paul here rightly, he's speaking of the reality that, as I said earlier, that it's going to look like Jesus. In Christ means representative of the attitude of Christ. In Christ means incongruent, or uh, in, incongruent sounds wrong uh, because it is. Uh, but congruent with the life of Christ, in the shape of Christ. When he says here, that victory looks like defeat, and that sacrifice brings life instead of death, that's Jesus. That's the cross of Christ. That's our paradigm for what following God looks like. And so it's not a surprise here that he says that we speak in Christ. And that means a whole lot of things. It means that we speak in love. It means that we speak with truth. It means that we speak with humility, which is profound when you remember that Jesus is God himself. And yet, just look at the way he carries himself. He can stoop down and talk to children. And the disciples go, that is so below your pay grade, Jesus. Someone else can teach the children. He says, don't send the children away. He seeks out one man like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who nobody likes. He speaks to the woman at the well that none of her own Samaritans would speak to and no dignified Jew would speak to. 
And unlike Peter, who walks into the house of Cornelius and says, if you knew how respectable of a Jew I was, you'd know how big of a deal it is I'm here. He never makes a big deal about it. Every conversation Jesus had was humanizing. The thing about the paradoxes we see this morning is it's more effective to do them just by looking at Jesus and doing what Jesus does than trying to look at the metaphors and balance the, you know, um, the columns. Instead of asking, what does victory look like? Just ask, who is Jesus? Instead of asking, what does slavery look like? What does renunciation look like? What are the things that God is calling me to give up? Just follow Jesus and the things that get in the way of that. Get rid of. Do what the author of Hebrews says when he says, let us run now fully the race that is set before us, laying aside every sin that so easily trips us up. Do you see why that would matter to a runner? You don't want to run with big clunky boots on. If you're pursuing Jesus and there's things in the way of that, there's no cost, no cost in giving them up. That's why Paul says in Philippians, he says, I've determined that all these things are as trash compared to knowing Christ. Bad things are good things, irrelevant, unimportant things. But we also have to remember that the message we've given is going to do different things. That the life that we live is going to look different to other people. That it's going to be a mixture of rejection and rejoicing. And that's status quo for the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I think we often forget how much we have in common with your disciples who can hear and see your ministry hands-on experience and still are so drawn to their own categories that they get it wrong. Jesus, when you get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? And in actuality, what waits in Jerusalem is a brutal death. Jesus, now will you restore the kingdom? Jesus washes the disciples' feet because they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. We have to confess this morning, Lord, that we don't know what a pleasing aroma always smells like. We don't know what, a, um, what your leading in triumph always looks like. They get convoluted by other metaphors. We picture ourselves in the chariot, wearing the laurel, hearing our name chanted by the crowds. But the beauty of what you've done in Christ is so profound and so deep that we can picture ourselves being led as those prisoners, shamed and spit upon, and full of joy and rejoicing because Jesus is victor. And we can live our lives fragrant, effusive, flowing into other lives so that they encounter Christ himself. And yes, to those who are perishing, it just smells like death. But you're going to use it as the scent of life to make your name known to those who will respond and become part of your kingdom.
And who is sufficient for these things? None of us. But Christ is sufficient. Your word is sufficient. Your spirit is sufficient. Our sufficiency is in you. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to shape our lives in this way as a church and as individuals in your name. Amen.